2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Where Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Anyone remember the old animated movie Chicken Run? It was 18 years ago that thing came out. 2000 Chicken Run hit the cinemas and kind of surprised us. You know, most people thought this was going to be a throwaway, but it ended up doing actually quite well. Story of a bunch of chickens on a poultry farm trying to escape. At one point, a particularly plump, dim-witted Irish hen named Babs, says, I don't want to be a pie. I don't like gravy. (laughs) After fainting because she thinks she's going to be killed, they wake her and she says, Oh, my life flashed before my eyes. It was really boring. (laughs) My life flashed before my eyes. Ever seen your life flash before your eyes? I hope not. Because apparently the whole idea of having your life flash before your eyes has to do with a dangerous or near-death experience. Something that brings it all to mind quickly. And scientifically, they actually have a name for it. Well, of course they do. They call it LREs, Life Review Experiences. Life Review Experiences. Back in February of 2017, there was a study that came out in the Journal of Consciousness and Cognition. Run right out and buy it. (laughs) Researchers led by one uh, Judith Katz of Hadassah University in Jerusalem studied seven different cases of life review experiences. And then from that, they developed a questionnaire for another 264 people that they had them take, and they discovered several several similarities among people who had experienced these things, whose lives had flashed before their eyes. Those included, uh, number one, all were non-linear, random memories. In other words, they weren't like chronological flashing from childhood to adulthood. It was all these memories just kind of flashed. They were all instantaneous. Like, just in a moment, all of this stuff came to mind. And thirdly, and I thought this was interesting, they were all deeply emotional. But not because of moments or experiences, they were deeply emotional relating to people that these folks had known in their lives. As though all these people flashed before them. And what researchers concluded out of this is that LREs are the result of mental processes becoming supercharged or ultra-concentrated. That's why it all just flashes at once, flashes, quote-unquote, before your eyes. Well, Peter saw a flash before his eyes. Not a flash of, of his life, but of the life. 
as they were up on the mountain, a bright, vivid experience of a sudden blaze of glory that would stay with Peter all his life. Something he would never forget and recounts to us here. In this second letter, now the hour is late, it's 64, perhaps 65 AD, Nero's violent and vicious persecution of Christians has already begun, it's gone ballistic, and Peter, along with Paul and others, is himself near death. He will share as much in this letter. And I wonder, in these last days of Peter, if his life with Jesus wasn't constantly flashing before his eyes. Moments like when Jesus said, Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter knows he's about to die, but his grave concern is for the church and not for his own life. And so he sits down and writes Second Peter to strengthen his brothers. As though the words of the Lord are still ringing in his mind, when you once have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter's life became about the strengthening of his brothers. And especially on his way out, if you'll note this, in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he writes, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I'm about to go. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This now, beloved, is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He's writing to stir up by way of reminder. Not memories or, or experiences in flashes of life, but rather stirring up the person of Jesus Christ. Just Jesus, as we say. Bringing Jesus to mind. This word to stir up in the Greek is diagairo, and it means to awaken, or it also can mean to agitate. Peter might be saying, I'm writing to agitate you. I get that. I need agitation sometimes. Kind of like in a washing machine. Those dirty, filthy clothes need to be agitated. You know? Sometimes in our own lives, when we get into the doldrums, we become apathetic. We need to be a little agitated. Ever walk out of church agitated? I hope so. If not, I'm not doing my job. It speaks also of the agitation as in the stirring of a sea in a storm. So it's a word that I'm sure Peter used at other times. The sea is stirred up, my friends. It's agitated today. This is a wake-up call. This very brief three-chapter letter is a wake-up call to stir up, even to agitate Christians. That we might, like waters of a storm, rise up in the sea of humanity in these last days. In these last days, that's important. His first letter, we just finished, was written to specifically reach the scattered, suffering sojourners and talking to them about, as we've talked about, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Well, this letter is even more serious. It's a dire warning. Second Peter is a warning against heresy 
in these last days. And by the way, he specifically targets a, a certain heresy. So it's heresy in general and a warning against false teachers in general, but there's a specific one that we'll see in just a moment. Paul would agree. Paul also warned many times about the creep of certain false teachers. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul said to the elders there at Ephesus, or or elders from Ephesus, he spoke to them on their last meeting, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. What is the primary role of the shepherd? Feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. That that is teach. Fill with the words, with the truth, with the, the bread of the word of God. Paul said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And it would only get worse as the last days would draw out. It's only worse now. We were just having a conversation about that this morning. How the foundational, fundamental understanding of the Bible is lacking, not in culture, but in the church. It used to be different. It used to be even in the culture there was basic Bible. It was taught in schools. Kids grew up hearing the Bible stories. So when you came to church, the pastor didn't have to go back to the fundamentals. He could go forward into the Scripture. And so those who are churchgoers and, and Bible-opening churchgoers would, would know the richness of understanding the Word of God. But now so many churches are filled with people who really don't know the Bible, or they, they look at it and they think it's so big, it's so thick. Something else we were talking about this morning. 66 books in the Bible. It's just, it's just so many. How can you know them all? How can you learn it all and, and have a handle on this thing? And I share with my brothers, you know, if you walk into a library today, there are so many books, there's no way you're going to read them all, and you know that. It's a little overwhelming. Barnes & Noble freaks me out. <laughs> but what if you were to walk into a library and it had just 66 volumes? Some of them, one chapter. Some very short, others longer, but just 66. That's all you've got to work with, to worry about, to focus on. I don't think that would overwhelm anybody. And that's the Word of God. And we are in days where the Word of God is not studied, is not consumed. At least like it's been in past days. So Peter says in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Let me ask you this. Do you agree or disagree with the following statement? Whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. Do you agree with that or do you disagree with it? Now, I would have thought that. Yeah, no, that's not. Hey, the Barna Research Group tells us 67% of non-believing Americans agree with that statement. 56% of people with other faiths, so non-Christian faiths, but they believe in something... 56% agree that whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth that you can know. This is what stunned me. 41% of practicing Christians agree with that statement. 41%! I I, I read that, I, I thought, no, I'm reading that wrong. 
I looked at the statement again. Whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. 41% of practicing Christians who took this survey agreed. Unbelievable. Ironically, on the other hand, 83% of practicing Christians also agree that the Bible provides us with moral absolutes which are the same for all people in all situations. So, clearly someone's confused. If on the one hand I can say, yes, there are moral absolutes, but on the other hand I can say, there really are no absolutes, what's going on in my head? You either believe in absolutes or you don't. And by the way, those who come along and say there is no absolute truth just violated their own statement because they made an absolute. How can there be no absolute truth if there are no absolutes? You just made an absolute statement and that's absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) A lot of people are confused about truth. Truth seems hard to find these days. Where are you? Ask yourself with the notion, the concept of absolute truth. Are there absolute truths that are absolutely true that you can cling to and trust and know and stand on as fundamental and foundational? We live in a relativistic society which makes everything up for grabs. Peter says we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. That's sophizo, where we get our word sophisticated, muthos, where we get the word myth. These are not sophisticated myths. This is good news, not fake news. Good news. You know, what's funny is those opposed to President Trump are now doing the same thing that he's doing when he calls out fake news. They're calling him a liar. And they're saying everything he says is just filled with lies. And then he turns around and says, Ah, oh, the fake news media, they're just filled with lies. And the other side says, he's lying. Well, they're lying. He's lying. But who's telling the truth? You ever sit there and watch? And, and I know you probably all have political leanings. And, and we watch these things and say, Well, somebody's got to be telling the truth. I'm not so sure. <laughs> it's hard to find what is true. Statistics are thrown out right and left. As if here's the truth, there's the truth. It's it's unbelievable. God's Word is truth. And I'll tell you what, it goes way beyond the shrewdness of man. These are no cleverly devised tales. And I can tell you that, now having gone through the Word together, we know this. It is too perfect. It is too intricate. It's it's incredible in the way that the, the Scripture supports the Scripture. The internal evidence, the external evidence is mind-boggling. If you will look at it, many people don't. Those who say that the Bible is contradictory have not looked at the Bible. Have not studied it out. I read the letters. I look at the Gospels. I check out the histories and the prophecies. And it blows my mind how perfect this word is. How infallible this word is. It's good news. But listen, I've already hinted that this letter is not just a wake-up call to general biblical truth. Although the Bible is in general and across the board true, and it is heresy to to discount or to to deny the words of Scripture, there's more to the letter than a generic truth of the Bible. In this cautionary missive, 
Peter is writing to underscore a specific truth, and it's a truth that was taking heavy fire in early Christianity. It's a truth, by the way, that's been taking some serious shelling today as well. Watch this. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power and coming does not speak of His first coming, but His second. We didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the dunamis is the word in the Greek, the power, and the parousia. The coming of Jesus Christ. Parousia, coming. When connected to Christ in the New Testament, it always, always speaks of His second coming. Always indicates His glorious appearing. The second coming of Jesus Christ, the parousia, is no clever myth. He's coming, and you can go to the bank on that one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, We request you, brethren, with regard to the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. The second coming of Jesus. But apparently we missed it. I don't know if you heard or read from that bastion of Truth in the news, the UK Daily Star, which is a tabloid, but on Thursday, June 21st of this past week, the headline read, End of the World! Biblical prophecy claims rapture comes today on the summer solstice. Of course, that caught my eyes. I read the article. It's poorly written. Bad theology throughout. Botching the biblical teaching on the coming of Jesus both the rapture of the church and the second and the glorious appearing of Christ, it focuses this article on the claims of one Steve Fletcher. Steve Fletcher is a self-proclaimed rapture prophet. He's all over YouTube, which is another place people get all kinds of excellent news. <laughs> this guy, this rapture prophet, who and people were getting buzzed up once again, This last Thursday, summer solstice. Well, of course God's going to come on the summer solstice. I mean, the the connections He made were so bizarre. And yet, this same guy, uh, he made rapture predictions between 2012 and 2016 over 50 times and was wrong every time. We'll talk about in a minute how God looks at the false prophet. And God's standard for prophecy, and for someone who says, I'm a prophet, God has a standard for that. And it's a high bar that He sets. Uh, This Steve Fletcher believes that we are currently in the tribulation, and that the rapture was going to come on the 21st. So the rapture comes after the tribulation, which is not what the Bible teaches. But he claimed that, of course, so the, this newspaper picked up on it, which makes Christians in general to the non-believing world look a little kooky. They love to grab a hold of these, these nuts. This is supposed to come inside, coincide again with the summer solstice last Thursday. It was sad to read, but listen to how the article concludes. Quote, while people of different faiths believe that there will be some religious end to life on earth, they disagree about how it will happen. Scientists have several theories about when earth will be destroyed, although none of the data points to last Thursday. 
The most widely accepted theory is that the sun, which is already gradually increasing in temperature, by the way, the truth is the sun is burning out, but let's not get all scientific. The sun, which is gradually increasing in temperature, will expand and swallow up the planet. And some scientists believe, buckle up, this could happen as soon as 7.6 billion years from now. Yeah, I was cleaning house, I was packing a suitcase, I was just getting ready to go. Between Steve Fletcher and modern scientists, it's like dumb and dumber. Where's the truth? Where is the truth in all this? Peter writes to stir up this singular powerful truth, and that is the absolute assurance of the coming of Jesus Christ. He is coming. And as far as I'm concerned, denying that coming, deferring that coming, disdaining His coming, or dating Jesus' return is all the same stuff. It's all heresy. It's lies. The main question that Peter contends with in this letter appears in chapter 3. Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 where he finally comes to it and he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, here's the question, where is the promise of his coming? Where's the promise of his coming? That's the question. And that's the one that he answers clearly and profoundly in, again, a very brief letter. And so he writes back in verse 16 of chapter 1, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. I want to give you two absolute assurances this morning, just two, of this truth. Number one, Christ's coming is assured by personal verification. Personal verification. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We came, we saw, we heard, and we made known. We saw with our eyes, we heard with our ears, and so we proclaimed with our mouths. And he continues in verse 17 to say, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So he's already said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That is, we saw. And he said, and then this voice came out of heaven. So we heard. We ourselves heard, verse 18. This utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all together relate the story I want to look at it this morning. So go ahead and lay your finger there in 2 Peter and go back to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 17. If you just go left a few books, you'll get there. Peter has just made a profound confession. And again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all agree with this. They all give a chronology of this. It's actually pretty tight. But Peter makes this confession in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And a matter of days later, they are now on what would be called the Mount of Transfiguration. People argue about what mountain that is. Some say it's Mount Tabor, which is down uh, looking over the Valley of Megiddo, a smaller mountain. 
Others say, no, it's, it's Mount Hermon up in the far north of Israel. I think it's Mount Hermon because that's up by Caesarea Philippi. I think that's a more logical and likely place, but I, I wasn't there, so I can't tell you for sure. But they go up the mount, and we're told, of verse 1 of chapter 17, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain. Mount Tabor is not a high mountain, by the way. It's more like a turtleback. It's a little hump, you know. Mount Hermon is a high mountain. They went up on a high mountain by themselves. Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. Meaning what? His face shone like the sun. And his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Luke tells us they were talking about his coming death. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared. Oh, I'm sorry, I already read that. Verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. You could say, just Jesus. Just Jesus standing there. It's a great story. And it's profound and it's powerful. And if you read that and you say, well, transfigured, maybe the sun was behind him and just caught their eyes a little wrong. Maybe they were just sleepy and so kind of imagined that it was, you know, Moses and Elijah. Maybe that. And if you're sitting there right now thinking that, then you are denying the truth of Scripture. And you've got to deal with that with God. Because I can tell you this absolutely happened exactly as described. That there was a, a scene, a picture of the glory of Jesus. Now you might say, how, how is this? Because this is the one that Peter grabs. This is the experience. This is the moment. This is the flash before his eyes that he grabs and pulls into the letter in Second Peter to say, this is eyewitness proof, eyewitness evidence of the second coming of Jesus. How? Why does he use this example? How is this eye and ear witness testimony of the second coming? Listen, even on the mount, Peter knew, he understood somehow that the transfiguration of Jesus was a preview of coming attractions. That what he was witnessing there... Now, Peter realized it clumsily, but obviously. Meaning what? Meaning what he witnessed brought him to some wrong conclusions, but he made the right connection. And even now, referring back to that moment as as a portent, if you will, of the coming kingdom, that's the right connection. He made some wrong conclusions, meaning what? Well, look again at verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here, and if you wish, I will make you three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then, of course, the Lord had to quickly set him straight. This is my son, you listen to him. What was the wrong conclusion? The wrong conclusion was equating Jesus with Moses and Elijah. Was looking at all three of them as equals. Moses, who was the lawgiver. Elijah, the great prophet. And the reality is that the law and the prophets pointed to the Christ. 
They're not equal to the Christ, but elevated Jesus, pointed to Jesus. So the wrong conclusion was making this whole thing equal when these two really were were sub-Jesus, were pointing to Him. Both the Law and the Prophets. So that was the wrong conclusion on Peter's part that we make tabernacles for all three. But the right connection was the kingdom. The kingdom. He saw what was happening before him and Peter thought the kingdom. He said, let's build tabernacles. Why? Why not thrones? Why not altars? Especially being, being a good Jew. Why not? Let's build three altars and we'll sacrifice to the three of you. Or, or why not shrines at least? But tabernacles? Let's put that in modern day language. It's like Peter saying, hey, Lord, let's camp out. And of course, you and Moses and Elijah are each going to need your own tent. John and Yaakov and I will just sleep out under the stars here. But we well, let's pitch three tents for the three of you. Lord, that's what he said. Tabernacle. In the Greek, it's skene. In the Hebrew, it's sukkah. Sukkah. Sukkot. The Feast of Tabernacles. Sukkot was and still is observed annually, beginning the 15th of Tishri, which is the September-October time frame, every fall. It's a seven-day marvelous Jewish camp out. Where Jews from all over, they would, they would come into Jerusalem. Nowadays, they just do it across the whole country, but they were required to come to Jerusalem for Sukkot, and there they would make these temporary seven-day lean-tos, if you will, or pavilions, or shelters. Nowadays, they do that. And I, I've told you before, it's interesting in Israel to see pictures all over the place, even little little uh, decks out on the edge of, of these tall apartment buildings will have these little sukkahs. These little tents pitched right out there and people would go out and sometimes they'll sleep in them. Usually the kids will sleep in them during the celebration. They'll have all their meals out there in the sukkah. And they have a great time. A married son and his new wife came home for Sukkot to celebrate with his parents. And so he built a sukkah right next to his father's in the yard. But for the whole week, all they did was argue and fight and they did not get along. You know why? Because they were two tents. Sukkot. Sukkot commemorates some things for the Jewish people. It commemorates bringing the people through the wilderness. As they lived in tents. As they dwelt there. They they tabernacled around the dwelling of God. Which was called what? The... Tabernacle, thank you. Yeah, the tabernacle. Where God by His Spirit said, I will meet you there above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle, which was the design ahead of time for what the temple would be based on later. And that was right in the midst of the people surrounded by all of their sukkahs, their tabernacles, their tents. And so Sukkot looks back and appreciates the fact that God went with them and and also provided them His own covering. The Shekinah glory of God. Psalm 105 verse 39. He spread a cloud for covering and a fire to illumine by night. And so again, to the Jews, Sukkot looks back to the wilderness. But, but, listen, it looks forward to the kingdom. You ask, 
a believing Jew today and they will tell you that. Yes, it looks back to the wilderness, but it also looks forward to the kingdom. Why? Because Zechariah prophesied that it would. That this would be celebrated annually in the kingdom. Zechariah 14.16 We will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. That is Sukkot. Put it in context here. Peter did. He put that together on the mountain. He sees Jesus transfigured. He sees Moses. He sees Elijah. And he immediately thinks, Kingdom now! It's the kingdom. It's time to build our sukkahs. Because look, he's, he's transfigured. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we have looked forward to. Let's get the party started. Let's begin the Feast of Tabernacles right now. Because look, guys, the kingdom has come. There's some faulty theology out right now that we've talked about. It's called dominionism or kingdom now theology. And it is infecting many, many wings of the church. People who think we're building the kingdom and we're going to hand it over to Jesus when we're all done. And the problem, biggest problem in my mind, and there are many problems with this whole kingdom now theology, the biggest one is it puts all the weight of the glory on us. We're going to do it. As opposed to looking to Jesus to accomplish the kingdom. And you don't, by the way, have a kingdom without the king. And this whole spiritualized idea that we're in the kingdom, that the church is the kingdom. No, it's not. The church is not the kingdom, my friends. The kingdom was promised to Israel. The church will rule and reign with Jesus in the kingdom. A literal, actual kingdom. That's what the Bible says. So it's not now. And there are other things about that theology I'm sure we will be talking about, especially as we get into Revelation. But Peter thought kingdom now. This is it. It's happening. Sukkot. By the way, we're about six months out from Passover in Matthew 17. I had never realized this before. You know where that would place the transfiguration? In the month of Sukkot. Peter's got the holiday season on his mind. You know, it would be like if we were in the middle of December and someone talked about the birth of Christ and Kathy Mao immediately thinks, well, of course, Christmas. <laughs> Actually, you could ask Kathy something about the birth of Christ January 1st and she'd be thinking about next year's Christmas. Peter, I think, had Sukkot on his mind. I don't know if it was at that point being celebrated or they were about to go down and celebrate it in Jerusalem. Or if they had just celebrated it, it's right around that same time frame though. And so it makes sense. Peter sees Jesus illuminated before him in all his glory. He sees Moses. He sees Elijah. How did he know, by the way, that it was Moses and Elijah? I have no idea. Their lives flashed before his eyes. (laughs) I don't know. It's, It's interesting. It does answer one question. Will we know each other in heaven? Of course we will. We're going to know people we didn't even know we knew. I'm going to have a little head-to-head with with D.L. Moody. We're going to sit and talk, the two of us. How are you going to find him, Rick? Well, I've seen pictures, but no. I'll know him. I'll know him. Peter's there and he's excited. And I'm sure many times in his life he flashed back to that moment on the mountain realizing that was not the kingdom. It was a preview of understanding. And so he writes in this letter, 
Peter there, along with James, Yaakov, and his brother John, were eyewitnesses, he says, of the majesty of Christ. Skip a few pages over. Go back to Second Peter. But if you'll skip just beyond that, listen to what John, who was there with Peter, has to say. John chapter, 1 John chapter 1 says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ's coming... Second coming is assured by personal verification. Verified by those who knew Him, those who walked with Him, those who saw Him and heard Him and touched Him and were around Him and experienced Him, even those who saw His manifested glory. As a preview of what was to come, the kingdom is coming. John would say, be assured, I'm a witness. Peter would say, absolutely, I was an eyewitness of the King, of Jesus in His kingship. Perfect timing, by the way, for Jesus to be transfigured before them. Why? Well, because Peter had just made that glorious proclamation, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Six days later, Jesus showed him, in fact, that was true. But more than that, in those six days, Jesus had begun to talk about His death, His crucifixion. He had become to very specifically and literally say, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, And there the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the Jews are going to have me arrested. They're going to try me. They're going to put me up on a cross and they will crucify me. But it's going to be okay. I'll I'll raise on the third day. I mean, he was that clear with them. But like any of us would be when hearing a dear one tell us that they're about to die, we'd be like, what? No, no. And they didn't get it. But Jesus was proclaiming that, and it was starting to depress, I think, the apostles. (laughs) And so up the mountain they go, and He shows them, look, this is the deal. The King. The King before their very eyes. The coming of Christ in His second coming, assured by personal verification. But, But wait a minute, wait a minute. Personal verification is a problem. Peter verifies this, right? John does. Yaakov, as we just read... Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all, Paul, they all verify this and they all saw with their own eyes, heard with their own ears. But you know, you can see with your eyes and hear with your ears and be wrong. Didn't Jesus say, John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So people saw Jesus and still didn't believe in Him. Jesus, after His resurrection, standing before a stunned Thomas, who when seeing Jesus finally fell down on His knees and worshipped Him, Jesus said in John 20, 29, because you have seen Me, have you believed? And then He said this, and you know what I'm going to say. Blessed are they who did not see, yet believed. So get this. There is a greater assurance of Jesus' return than being a personal eyewitness or earwitness giving testimony. 
There's something even greater than this. What is it? Verse 19. 2 Peter 1.19 We have the prophetic word, note this, more sure. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. We have the prophetic word more sure, he says. More sure. Babaos is the Greek word and it means steadfast and firm. We have the prophetic word steadfast and firm. Why do the translators add the word more sure? Because this word for steadfast is in the accusative comparative tense. Meaning what? Meaning compared to what he just said, this is even better. This is more steadfast than eyewitness testimony. Oh, I saw him on the mountain, Peter says. I proclaim to you what my eyes saw and what my ears heard. Absolutely, he's coming again just like he promised he would and we will all see him in his glory. But, but, we have something better. You have something better than my eyewitness testimony, Peter writes. We have the prophetic Word more steadfast, more firm, more reliable. We're not talking about <laughs> predictions of self-proclaimed prophets either. People who just happen to get some things right in terms of the prophetic word. There are a lot of guys, even in the church today, running around the world, a lot of women claiming to be prophets, claiming to bring prophecy. I am always very cynical. I- I'm just telling you the truth. Even if it's someone who claims Christ, I am cynical. I always test it. I think we're called to test it, aren't we? Test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Didn't Paul write that? Test the spirits. John wrote in 1 John. So we need to be careful with these things. There are those out there, they're tying together strands of dates and numbers and enigmatic events. And it's interesting to talk about. And we have. We've talked about the cycles of the moon and the blood moons. We've we've looked at different things and found it interesting, but we always come back to the prophetic word. Because all that other stuff is not the prophetic word. Men like Steve Fletcher or Nostradamus. You know, Nostradamus actually predicted some things that came true. Well, should we believe him? Well, he also predicted a lot of things that did not come true. So I would say he was lucky. And no, you should not. Just believe Him. Jesus said in Matthew 24-35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. In a world of fake news where we're trying to figure out what is true, My words will not pass away. There's your truth. Jesus is true. He also said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Referring to his return, referring to the rapture of the church, and and referring then to the glorious appearing of Jesus coming after that. No one knows. No one knows. He says. Now, now we've talked about that that the the, uh, uh, the festival of the the trumpet, right? Feast of trumpets. Thank you. Yom Teruah is known by some as the the feast that we don't know the day or the hour. Because we don't. It's based on when the first sliver of the, of the new moon is seen. And so, so that's when, so we don't know precisely. And people say, so it's gonna be Yom Teruah. Maybe not. Maybe not. Could be. Maybe not. 
Because only the Father knows, and even the context of what Jesus is saying is, I I don't know. The Father alone knows. Now, I, I bring that up because Peter in this letter is going to give graphic detail of the passing away of heaven and earth. He's going to talk about the glorious appearing of Jesus. And then he's going to talk about that time when heaven and earth will pass away. But he never dates it. The Bible never dates the rapture of the church or the glorious appearing of Jesus. It comes close. We know the glorious appearing of Jesus is going to take place precisely seven years after Israel signs the covenant with Antichrist. But we don't know when that's going to be signed. We don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know the day or the hour. We should be aware, obviously, of times and seasons. We look at where we're living today, and this should give you some alert that we are at the end of the last days. But we don't know the day or the hour. Listen, what I'm getting at is this. The prophetic word more sure, as Peter calls it, is Holy Scripture. It's Holy Scripture. It's not what some guy comes along on YouTube and proclaims. That is not the prophetic word more sure. It's not what someone comes up to you and says on a Sunday or a Wednesday or in a small group. Thus says the Lord. I heard this. He has a word for you. Be careful. Someone says, I've got a word for you. Take it with a grain of salt. Open up the word. Pray about it and let God confirm that. Now, I'm not saying they're not prophets today. And those who can give prophecy. But this is the prophetic word more sure. The Bible is what he's talking about. All the prophecies of the Bible are what give us the absolute assurance, even beyond personal testimony, the assurance of the coming of Jesus. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19 verse 10 tells us. See, the gift of prophecy, as as we think about it today, people don't understand the gift of prophecy. Or, Or someone who's called a prophet. The gift of prophecy is not so much foretelling, as the apostles and the prophets of old did, foretelling the coming of Christ the first time and the second time. And by the way, if anyone does bring a prophetic word that is foretelling in this day or age, it must align perfectly with the Scriptures. Someone comes along with some foretelling of some future event and it's not aligning with the Word of God, it's not prophecy from God. Because even the prophets of old and the apostles aligned perfectly with God's Word. Their prophecy was forthtelling. Forthtelling. That's more of the gift of prophecy today. A, a forthtelling, that is speaking forth the complete and finished and perfect Word of God in a way that penetrates the heart. That's, that's the kind of prophecy that edifies and builds up and encourages the church today. And it often goes hand in hand with the gift of teaching because it's the word getting in. The prophetic word, more sure, is this word. And guess what? We've got it. We've got it. Man, go into the library and start going through the 66 books. Start studying. Look into the word. We have, he says, the prophetic word, more sure. And it's better. It's more sure than personal experience. Why? Because personal experience can be vague or cloudy. Think back back to the defining moments of your lives. 
Have you ever told a story of something that's happened to you and noticed in your own mind it's changed a little bit over the years? You know, it's gotten a little more impressive. The fish is a little bigger than when first caught. You know that story about a guy? Hey, I caught a fish and it was this big. You know. The the stories get bigger and and our recollections... You know, we might have certain points down, but the exact notion... My brother and I was so funny. I remember when we were teenagers and we were talking about this event that happened when we were kids. And it was the fact that I was two years old. My mom put me in the front seat of our car in the driveway. The car was running. She ran back into the house to get something, and I put the car in reverse. These are the days before car seats. These is when, you know, the days when we used to lie on the back shelf of the car, 75 miles an hour on the freeway. Freedom, you know? <laughs> So I was sitting in the front seat and click, and back the car went right into the middle of the street. My mom comes running out screaming, Ron behind her. Well, my brother remembered it happening to him. He had told the story for years of how he had backed the car out of the driveway when he was three, and my mom came running out of the house carrying me. That was a personal recollection of a personal experience that did not happen. How do you know, Rick? Because I remember it happening to me. And I had the prophetic word of my mom, more sure, who said, no, it was Rick who was in the car. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. She set us straight. But that's my point. Personal experiences, religious experiences, hey, they can be marvelous. They can be encouraging. They can also be very vague and cloudy. You've got to be kind of careful with that. We have the prophetic word, more sure. So I know things that have happened to me personally and spiritually. I can share those things. But I would much rather just share the Word of God because you can stand on this. It's the Word more sure. Personal experiences are emotional. can't pull emotional out of them. They're confusing. They're unreliable. They're often swayed by suggestion. Without the clarity of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, personal experience can mislead right into flashes of strange fire that are not really of God. So we have the prophetic word, more sure, to which you would do well, or to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Pay attention as to a lamp. And I love the fact, it says, shining in a dark place. The word dark in the Greek means murky, or gloomy, or squalid. Let me just ask you this. How many of you think this world is becoming a dark place? It's murky. I mean, at best, it's murky. Again, what, what is true? What is not true? How do you know who's speaking the truth? Proverbs 6.23 says, the commandment is a lamp. And the teaching is a light. Psalm 119.105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. The world may get murky, but we got a lamp. We have a light. A lamp to my feet and a light to my path, by the way, implies you're going somewhere. You're, You're headed along a path. We are going to His coming. We are headed to where Jesus is. The prophetic word lights the way to Jesus Christ. He says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The dawning day in Scripture alludes to the coming kingdom. Even in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
The idea of the dawn of the day, that day, that glorious day, looking forward to the day of His coming, of His glorious appearing. So what's the morning star? And the morning star, Peter writes, arises in your hearts. It's an interesting word in the Greek. You would know it in English, phosphorus. Until the phosphorus arises in our hearts. Now we use it a little differently. To the Greek, phosphorus meant day star or bringer of light. The star. Remember that old prophet for prophet, Balaam? You know, he was hired by Balak to curse Israel, but all he could do every time he opened his mouth was bless. Just blessing kept coming out. They're up on a mountain. He's looking down over the camp of Israel and he opens his mouth to curse and just bless. <laughs> and Balak's getting all frustrated with him and he's just bless. And that's all he could do. Well, listen to what Balaam said, Numbers twenty four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. There's a prophecy. A prophecy by a guy who didn't even know what he was saying, wasn't even believing it or trusting in the Lord for it, but it was coming out of his mouth and it was a prophetic word more sure. There's a star going to arise out of Jacob. There's a star that will come out of all Israel. Revelation 21-23 tells us there is a day coming, a future, beyond the kingdom actually, where the city has no need of the sun, speaking of New Jerusalem. Or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. There's your day star, the bringer of light. Jesus even says in Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. So He owns that title. Isaiah chapter 60, another prophecy, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. We have the prophetic word more sure. Pay attention, it's a lamp shining in a murky place that will lead us to the day, the coming, the rising of the morning star. But you might say, okay, I get what you're saying. Personal experience is what Peter first offers. Eyewitness account, but that can be deceptive. So you have this prophetic word, more sure, which is supposed to be solid, but how do we know the prophets weren't deceived? How can we believe the prophets themselves? Verse 20. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy ever made was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Moved by the Holy Spirit. That word in the Greek is carried along. Conveyed as in a ship on the sea or as a leaf blown on the wind. And I hear Jesus saying, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John chapter 3, verse 8. Prophecy is not a matter of one's own interpretation. That is, the prophets weren't coming up with things to jot down and throw out there. They weren't making stuff up as they went. Cleverly devised, sophisticated myths. They weren't doing that. In fact, the prophets, and we see this in the Bible, often didn't even understand their own prophecies. 
They were writing things down and turning around and questioning the Lord on them. What do you mean by this? I don't get this. Just just write it down. Okay, well, I don't understand what this... I, I, I'm confused, Lord. And Peter told us back in 1 Peter, didn't he? That they made careful searches and inquiries to try and figure this out. 1 Peter chapter 1, when is this suffering of Christ? And, and when are the glories to follow? And, and they were trying to understand what they couldn't possibly understand back when they were giving the prophecies. And yet, here's the thing. Here's how we know the prophets were correct. Here's how we can trust them. They were spot on. Read the prophecies of Isaiah. Spot on. Isaiah who said 150 years before it happened that a man named Cyrus was going to be the rescuer of Israel. And Cyrus was the one who released the Jews to go back to the land out of Babylon. How did Isaiah know that? There were prophecies throughout that were instantaneous. Things that were prophesied that happened immediately. Jeremiah saying, Jerusalem's going down. It's going to burn. It's going to be destroyed. And all the other false prophets were saying, no, no, the temples here were fine. And Jeremiah is saying, no, it's going to happen. What happened? Exactly what he said. And throughout, we see this with the prophets. They would give prophecies that happened immediately or within a matter of years or decades. And then they would give long-range prophecies. You know, David prophesying a thousand years before Christ that he would be pierced through, that his hands and feet would be pierced. Or Isaiah, confirming that in Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Isaiah talking about Isaiah 7.14, that I'm going to give you a sign, here's your sign. A woman, a virgin, will be with child. Micah talking about Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus. How did Micah know that 500 years before Christ? And on and on and on it goes. The prophecies that Christ alone fulfilled in Himself in the first coming, first coming prophecies of Jesus, over 300 prophecies that were spot on as to location, as to place, as to where He would be born, how He would die, where it would happen, how He would be betrayed. I mean, it goes on and on. And the more you read and study the prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures leading up to the Christ, the more absolutely convinced you are that the prophetic word is more sure. I can trust it. It's absolute. And I told you before that God set the bar high. Let me quickly show you how. Deuteronomy 18. I'll just read it to you. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. Or verse 20. Verse 20, he says, The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, Steve Fletcher, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, Nostradamus, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is not the thing which the Lord has, that is, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. What's the bar? If any prophet claims to be a prophet of God and prophesies one thing that is false, he's not a prophet. See, we've got a a problem in the church today. And this has bothered me for years. People standing up saying, I'm a prophet of God and prophesying something that's not true. At that point, right then, done. You're not a prophet. Well, can't there be forgiveness? Yes, there can be forgiveness. 
But he has already verified he's not a prophet. Don't listen to him. And yet people go, yeah, but he, but he really spoke to my heart. Well, that's fantastic. He also spoke lies. And of the Old Testament prophets, of the Hebrew prophets, God said, if someone prophesies presumptuously, they are to die. Now, I'm not suggesting we go out on a killing spree. Don't misread. But there's a very clear bar for the, prof- the prophetic word more sure. And that is, it must be true. Not 98% of the time, not 99% of the time, 100% of the time the prophecy must be true. And we see that with all the prophecies of Scripture. They never miss. They are 100% accurate. Only God knows the end from the beginning. Remember this verse from last week, Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The prophets were just men spoke from God. They didn't interpret, they didn't come up with their own stuff, they didn't add to or take away from. They just spoke what God told them and the only way they could know was because God knows. So Christ's coming is assured by personal verification. And we get that in the Scriptures. And we get that from each other as well. I personally verify He's coming. I know that I know that I know He's coming. Well, what if you're wrong, Rick? The prophetic word more sure supports what I've just said. But Christ's coming is more sure by prophetic inspiration. Let me finish with this. What happened with the Shekinah glory? Because what Peter saw was a a flash of that same glory. The glory of God all over Jesus, coming out from Jesus as Jesus was transfigured. The Shekinah. Peter and, and, and James, Yaakov, and John saw this, experienced this. What happened to it? What was the deal with it? Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 tell us that the Shekinah glory filled the temple. On the day of the dedication of the temple, Solomon finished the building and dedicates it and the, the glory is filled. And the glory of God, in terms of the presence of the Lord apparently remained there over 400 years in that first temple. But that temple was destroyed. Ezekiel prophesied, Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, he saw God's glory departing the temple. He describes it, and it's, it's, it's almost sad in description, the, the glory of God coming from the sanctuary out to the threshold, out to the gate, until Ezekiel 11.23, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. Anyone know what mountain that is? That's the Mount of Olives. That's the mountain east of the city. So the glory of God came out of the temple and went and hung around above the Mount of Olives... But Ezekiel also prophesied the return of that glory, saying, Ezekiel 43, verse 2, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with His glory. Sound of many waters. That's what John said Jesus sounded like in Revelation chapter 1. So the glory is coming back by the way of the east with the voice of Jesus returning. What's the Mount of Olives is over there. 
Jesus who was transfigured and and Peter saw that, that coming glory, that scene, that preview. And now, Ezekiel, who was 600 years before Peter, says, no, he's coming back the way of the east. There's a curious midrash. A midrash is a rabbinical commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures. And I can't verify this or say that it's true, but I find it fascinating and I'll share it with you. Rabbi Yonatan said three and a half years the Shekinah glory stayed upon the Mount of Olives in the hope that Israel would do penance, but they did not. Where did he get that? I have no idea. But from his perspective, taking Ezekiel's prophecy that the glory departed the temple and went to the Mount of Olives to the east, this, this one rabbi said the glory remained there for three and a half years. Why is that interesting? How long was Jesus' public ministry? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Huh. Ezekiel's vision of the departure of the glory of God may also suggest the departure of Jesus Himself. Because He went out from the temple courts, He went across the Kedron, He went up to the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane where He was arrested. He would never come back into the temple court again after His crucifixion and resurrection. Where did He ascend from? The Mount of Olives. The Mount to the east of the city. And in fact, Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, another prophecy. He says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. I'm going to go away, the Lord says. And He did. But He's coming back. He is coming back. Even as the mocker demands, where's the promise of His coming? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And Zechariah tells us exactly where he's going to set foot when he comes in his glory. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, 14. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 tells us, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth, sukkah, tabernacle of David, and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Speaking of the temple that Messiah will build as Messiah comes to bring His kingdom at the right time, returning in all the glory that Peter just had a little preview of. And when He calls... We'll go in a flash. The Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. And so we will always be with the Lord. Peter is writing to stir up this truth. Jesus is coming. He is coming quickly. These days indicate the return of the Lord more prominently than any in my lifetime, but I think than any in the last several decades. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come? Are you certain of that which is true? Are you sure that you'll go when He calls? Father, I pray for assurance this morning. And as we head into this second letter of Peter, may we be assured by the prophetic word. May we see and know truth even in a world that is so untrue. A world with so many lies and deceptions, Father, may we know the truth like a light shining in a murky place. I pray truth will be pervasive among us 
I pray for a lifting of veils, Father, so people will believe. So that when we hear the name of Jesus, we will all have the same immediate experience of of love and joy and peace. Father, that we will know Your grace and Your mercy and Your compassion. That when we hear the name of Jesus, Lord, we will long to be in Your presence, to be where You are. Lord, by Your mercy this morning, I pray, open all our eyes to truth. And may we know when You call us that we will go. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you don't know this morning, you can know. You can be absolutely assured of the truth of where you're going to be when Jesus comes. He wants you to be with Him. I invite you to make that choice. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never been baptized, let's get it done. Trust in Him. He is the only truth, it seems, left in the world. But be assured, He loves you and He wants to save you.